You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844 844- Nine 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 two four nine. That's eight four four nine 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 two four nine. Or you can email us at let's talk Torah at gmail.com and we will answer as many questions as we can. Great week as always. The weather keeps changing. You have to love Michigan. A little bit it felt a little cold and nasty, but forty two is not cold and nasty compared to last week where we had, I don't know, eight or nine inches of snow and bitter cold weather. So I'm really okay with 42 cold and nasty instead of lots of snow, and the snow is pretty much gone. That means the children in school are not bringing their sleds and not bringing their snow pants. It's amazing. Last week, even the beginning of the week, my kids go to school, boots, snow pants, gloves, hats, coats. This week... Forget the boots, for sure, no snow pants, no hats, the coats. You need an umbrella. But that was only this afternoon. Otherwise, it's been pretty dry. So, you know, it's uh, it's okay. It's Michigan. We don't mind the change in weather at all. So early in the week, I actually had something very interesting, pretty important. Uh, I was a one of the school representatives. There's a fantastic program um, we have here in Detroit. There's similar national programs. We call it, in our day schools, we call it Safety Kids. Um, it is a program to keep children safe. Um, it's an ABCD program. They have to, um, they have to, if they, what happens if they get lost? They have to ask for help. They have to learn to stand calm or sit calmly and ask for help. And, and if they're in a store, go to a cashier, go to somebody with a, um, with a store uniform, Go to a mother with children. It could be a father, technically. Um, we'll talk about mothers with children later in the show. Um, if they ever go somewhere, they have to bring a friend. If they, uh, anywhere they're going, if they change their mind, they have to check at home to tell their parents they're changing their mind. It teaches them to be careful with strangers. Um, it certainly is, is, is really important part of it, and that's the D, is the do-tell that uh, people cannot uh, touch a child in an inappropriate way, and your body is yours, and you have to um, you have to feel comfortable with anybody who approaches you. And if you're not comfortable, you have to tell them, and you have to scream and run away and carry on. So it's a it was a great training program, and I guess I am officially trained to go into a classroom and teach the children about safety. And um, actually, this program only goes through fifth grade. It's interesting. Um, the the middle school or, or, or above that, at this point, is only when a social worker psychologist deals with the children. They don't have the full program up and running yet. But the children have heard the program in preschool and first grade and second and third and fourth and fifth. They hear it so many times. It becomes ingrained. And they say it's working. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good knowledge and a lot of good training, and uh, the whole goal is that we shouldn't have to have situations 
um, where the children are not safe. So the more the children know and the more the parents know and every and the schools and the administrations were on the same page, the better it is for the kids. And that's all we can ask for. That was it. This week, um, we do have a special guest coming up. Her name is Atara Malach. She's a parenting expert, a business coach. She's an author of A Working Mother's GPS, A Guide to Parenting Success for the Modern Working Mom. And that's going to be, she has a, a book and she's a, a life coach and she's really a fascinating person, speaks all over the place. And we're going to talk to her. Maybe she'll help the fathers also, but for sure, she helps the mothers. But... That will be in our next segment. We got to get into this week's Torah portion. A fascinating name of the Torah portion is the life of Sarah. Chaya Sarah. Um, Sarah um, passes away. Is nifter? She dies. It, really, at the end of last week's Torah portion. Abraham comes back from the binding of Isaac from Akedus Yitzchak. He comes back and he sees Sarah has died, and now he has to bury her, and he does not have a place to bury her. But more than that, he actually knows exactly where he wants to bury his wife. And that is in the famous Ma'aras HaMachpelah. Um, if you've ever been in Israel, again, it's not always safe to go there. It's in an Arab area, but there are buses and there are soldiers. And usually I think you could go. There are times you can't go. Right now it's really a big building, but originally it was a, it was a cave. And it was either it was a double cave or there's a question in the translation. Ma'ares HaMachpelah literally means double cave. So either there's two floors or it's a cave where couples are buried. So it's Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, Abraham and Sarah, um, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. Those are the couples that are buried there. I'm assuming that's all the room there is in that cave. And Abraham discovered that cave, and he discovered um, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve were buried there, and he realized this is a special place to be buried. He wants to make sure he and his wife can be buried there. Uh, it would seem that no one knew that um, Adam and Chava were buried there, because if the owner would know that the first man and woman are buried in his property— if you think he's selling that property to somebody else, you can forget about it. Hello. Tourist attraction number one. Set up shop. He's got life made. So it would make sense no one knew. And what's interesting is the Torah never even mentions about Adam and Chava being buried there. It does tell us Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah. Those three peers... Those people are all mentioned very clearly more than once that that's where they're buried, but no mention, the Talmud mentions it, but in the Torah itself, no mention that they're buried there. So, uh, so he, wants to bury, he wants to bury his wife there. So there's a problem because he is a stranger in, in the city called Haran, or Kiryas Arbet, has more than one name, he's a, he's a guest. And uh, the normal rule with uh, guests in that town was there was a, a separate grave for strangers. I wouldn't call it a potter's field, but it might have been. Right? In other words, uh, every family had their ancestral burial plots. And if you're not from here, you're a little stuck. So Abraham first discusses with the the town at large, everybody came out for the, for the eulogies, and Abraham said, uh, 
guys, I need a place to bury my wife, and I don't want just the regular stranger's field. So please don't treat me like a stranger. Treat me like somebody who lives here. So Abraham was famous. Look, War of Four and Five Kings. Abraham was a famous, famous person. People knew about him. He was not just a regular person. So they said to Abraham, Abraham, you are a prince. You are like a king to us. Uh, any, you want anybody's grave for your family? You ask, it's yours. Okay, so Abraham got part one. This is like, you know, working through the first level of, of zoning politics. So he gets the first okay. So now he's got to go to the owner. So he asks for Ephron. Um, Ephron was recently appointed to a high position. That way God arranged it, so Abraham is dealing with important people. And he says, I would like to speak to Ephron. So a very fascinating verse. It says, Ephron is amongst the people. So Abraham says, I need Ephron. I need that double cave. I need the Maris Machpelah. So Ephron in front of everybody, in a very loud, proud voice, says, Abraham, you want my double cave? For you, Abraham, it's free. Let it be a gift. He probably said it a few times. And he probably looked around to make sure that everybody heard how he offered his cave to Abraham for free. And he probably repeated it more than once. And Abraham, of course, knew who he was dealing with. So Abraham says, okay, Ephron, that's so kind of you. It's so thoughtful. Let's, you know, just get the paperwork done. We'll go into a side room. We'll be in a private area, me and you. And we'll discuss this. And we'll take care of all the nitty-gritty paperwork. Now, even though I say it that way, it happens to me this was an important part of Abraham acquiring the cave. Because later on, we're going to find when Jacob tells his children to bury him, in the Marasmach Pela, he gives him a whole long list where it's located, um, who it was bought from, all the zoning rules. It wasn't just for Abraham and Sarah. It was it was used as a cemetery, because even in zoning, by the way, for those who've ever dealt with zoning, it's not forever. If you change zoning, whether it's, I don't know all the rules and regulations myself, but from from a residential and you want, to, you want to build a school building there, you want to to an office there, or any other things. It's not a forever um, carte blanche. You can do whatever you want. There's a certain amount of time that you have to get it done, and if you don't get it done, then the zoning is revoked, goes back to its old zoning, and you got to reapply all over again. And all the begging and pleading, going to neighbors and asking and checking. So anyways, Abraham wants to make sure that everything is set up, that this is not just for my wife, Sarah. It's not just for me and my wife. It's for our children and grandchildren. And it's a, it's meant to be a cemetery, and it's not a one-time deal, and it's not a present. It's a, it's a real ownership, and he can't take it back. So all that stuff Abraham's to take care of. Okay. So Abraham shows up in, in the room, and he says, come on, Ephraim. Come on. Between me and you. Come on. Let me pay. I, I don't want no gifts. I don't want a freebie over here. I want, I want to pay. I want legal documents. I want it to be clear that the ownership has changed through this payment from your family to my family. Saffron says, okay, Abraham, if you're begging and pleading, fine. 400 big silver coins, which I believe I've seen numbers up uh, valued nowadays upwards of $2 million. So Ephron is the famous big talker, and he doesn't even do a little bit. It was in last week's story portion, we had Abraham offers bread and water to the three angels, thinking they were people, and he feeds them a feast. And so Abraham is the, says little, but does a lot. 
while Ephron goes ahead and talks big. He wants everyone to think that he is the world's greatest, most kind and thoughtful and considerate person. But when push comes to shove, he doesn't even do anything. He takes a humongous amount of money for the cave. Now, Abraham's not complaining. Let's make that clear. Abraham does not care what he's paying for this land. He wants it. He will pay whatever it takes to make sure his wife is buried. So, therefore, he pays. Ephraim gets his money. Abraham gets his documents. And Sarah is able to be buried in the Maris Machpelah. Okay, so once we're talking about burial, um, it's an important thing to focus on for a few minutes. And that is... um, I'll say it's a Jewish thing. It's not, it should not only be a Jewish thing. It may be. But uh, Jews very much care and very much take care when a, after a person dies. They take care of the body. There's a lot of honor done to the body. We won't do anything to embarrass the body. And as quickly as possible, we want the body buried. We don't want to be embalming and chemicals and showings. We want the body as fast as possible buried. What's the reason for that? Because there's two parts to a person. There is the body, the physical body, and then there's the soul. Together, we're a person. One without the other can't do anything. We'll push that off to the side. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's worth it. So when the soul separates from the body, that is death. Translation of death is the soul has separated from the body, so now the body cannot do any function anymore. And by the way, the soul also, it's a spiritual being, can't do anything. It can't fulfill any mitzvah. It can't be kind anymore. It cannot help people anymore. It is a spiritual being. Only when the body and soul are connected do we have the ability to do kind deeds, to study Torah, to help other people, to, you know, even burial, by the way, is in the list of what's considered being kind. As we talk about that a person has to be kind in the list of being kind. Last week, we talked about visiting the sick. This week, the, the kindness is burying people. And now, interesting enough, the, um, in a later Torah portion, Jacob will say to Joseph, he says, please do a kindness of truth or a true kindness and bury me um, in Israel. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. So why is that a kindness of truth? So the answer is, that most favors, we expect something back. I know I've told this story a bunch of times. I was actually discussing it with a friend today. Um, when I was first married, we had a bunch of friends, young, strong. Um, so when a friend was moving from one apartment to another apartment, so a lot of times I would rent the truck. For whatever reason, I had a credit card so I could rent the truck. The other guys didn't have a credit card. Um, we'd rent the truck, put the stuff in, get to the guy's house, load up his apartment, and I'd return the truck. Now, that was a favor. And it was anytime somebody needed to move, they knew they could come to me, and I would rent the truck, and I'd drive, and I'd spend my afternoon helping them work. Well, sure enough, what it was, six months later, a year later, my turn. And I went around to all my friends and said, guys, um, I'm moving today. I got myself a truck, so whoever could help would be great. And I was fantastically disappointed by all these people I had helped, and they did not reciprocate. So what do you see? You see that even when I did the kindness the first time around, I did expect a little payback. I expected to, re- to receive just like I gave. So I was disappointed. But 
but that's general. So generally, when somebody does a kindness, he may not always get paid back, but he certainly expects to be paid back. So I wasn't paid back, but I expected it. The fact that I expect to be paid back means my kindness is not the ultimate kindness. It's good, but it's not on top of the hill. While um, when you help bury a person, that person cannot pay you back. So that is the ultimate kindness because you know when you're helping the person get buried, who's paying you back? The family, maybe they will, maybe they won't. They don't even know who you are. You're, the, you're friendly with the father. The kids don't know who you are. You came to visit. Who knows what? They came to visit. So in any case, burial is the ultimate kindness because you don't expect any payback. End of story. So, so when we're talking about the, so when the soul separates from the body, let's get back to what we're talking about. So we have a soul and we have a body. When the soul separates from the body, that's death. But the soul is not comfortable yet. It doesn't go straight up to heaven. It like hovers and hangs around in the neighborhood. That's why we have to be careful what we say by eulogy because the soul is there paying attention. It's not just skin and bones. It's real. So the soul is watching its body. And its body is important to it. So to go ahead and cremate and burn that body causes tremendous suffering to the soul. It's something we don't want to do at all. What's interesting is Titus, when he wanted to, we're going to talk about Titus in a couple weeks, when he wanted to make sure that, uh, that God couldn't catch him, he said, burn my body so God can't find me. So Titus is... Uh, perpetual punishment is that he's always burnt up and his body has to reconnect and that gets burnt again. Um, anyways, I'm up against the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah. When we come back from the break, we'll be joined by Tara Malach and we'll talk about GPS for the modern working mother. So stay, hold through the break and we're going to be right back. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Well, your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to the drop-in today. Then you get off your couch and you make life happen. 
Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? And we're back. And they tell me that my guest is here. So... We are joined by a Tara Malach, parenting expert, business coach, author, working mother's GPS, a guide to parenting success for the modern working mother. Atara, how are you today? Excited to be on. <laughs> this is really an honor and a pleasure. Oh, that was such a nice way of saying hello. So I hope the weather is nice by you here. It's drizzly and cold, but not snowing. So we're yeah, good. Yeah, I heard. I heard how you had the snow after the raking of the leaves, and uh, I'm an ardent follower. <laughs> the sun is shining, as it should in all our hearts, always. But yeah, uh, welcome or hi from sunny New York. Ah, sunny New York. I'm glad. That means my mother has sun. That's beautiful. So just to get us started, who is Atara Malach? Oh, uh, let's hear. After so many decades... I suppose I can narrow it down to mother who believes in the power of the family, the power of women, and loves seeing how mothers can realize that they can learn to do things in a wiser manner and enjoy their time, both with their children and families at home, and also whatever other mission or business they feel fulfills them um, during the rest of the hours of the day. Oh, that is amazing. Whoa, that was fantastic, which almost answers my next question, because uh, I know you're a life coach or, or at least a mother coach. Um, why did you get into coaching? Well, actually, coaching is only lately. I've been a psychotherapist for many decades and an author. Um, so I've had a private practice. I used to live in Israel until 17 years ago. I lived there for 23 years and raised most of my children there. And actually, my children and the grandchildren are all in Israel. And you're so, here? So uh, when you say Libi Mizrach, my heart is in the, you know, the East. It definitely is on very many levels. I also heard that you have a son and daughter there, so I'm keeping tabs. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Friday is also my catch-up day with children, among others. But I went into... Um, the profession and actually my life's passion of helping people um, create lives that they're proud of and connected to because that is what I try to do for me on a daily basis, for my family, for those I love, and why shouldn't I try sharing insight, wisdom, inspiration um, to anybody whose lives I can touch. Wow, amazing. The real question I should ask you is, because my wife asks me all the time, if all my kids live on the East Coast or Florida, like, what am I doing in Detroit? So I almost should be asking you, if all your children and grandchildren are in Israel, why are you still in New York? Well, that tugs on my heartstrings. I have parents who I'm very close to. 
Uh, until not long ago, believe it or not, I also had a very special grandmother here. Wow, and wherever amazing. I am, I used to live in Israel first, then I came back, and uh, our plans are to go back. But I find that when I accept the fact that wherever I am, it could be geographically, emotionally, financially, wherever I am, that's where Hashem put me, and I should try to make the most of it. And... Um, impact those around me in a positive way, of course, as much as possible. So that's the answer to everything. Wherever I am, I try to be the best me I can be. And that's my message to working mothers, that whether it's coming home exhausted after a long day out of the house or going through, like, he, you know, you mentioned before um, uh, in one of the previous uh, uh, Let's Talk Torah interviews how this has been a very busy holiday season with uh, <laughs> endless meals, etc., yes. etc., we should try our best to just be who we can be and um, revel in the present. And that's what I'm doing here. I have to make sure when I go home that my wife is paying attention to this. This is very important. <laughs> very good. Oh, amazing. So, okay, let's get into it a little bit because you have so much stuff to talk about and you have so much energy. So you have a phrase. Um, you write, how using, not losing, mommy guilt made me a better mother. So first, what is mommy guilt? <laughs> well, I'm sure you um, have spoken about Jewish guilt. Yes. But mommy guilt is even Jewish guilt, you know, on steroids. Because as mothers, we feel guilty. And I'm talking about myself. Actually, everyone feel comfortable. I'm talking out loud to myself. Um, and this is that we feel guilty about everything. So I'll just, you know, um, make it clearer by saying that we have a few ways well, you can make thousand categories, but just to whittle it down, it would be the coulda, shoulda, woulda, meaning I could have been nicer to them before they left for school, and I should have been the mother that volunteered to bake for the PTA, and I could have, and I didn't. If you're out of the house, you missed your child's first smile or first tooth or first meltdown, um, and, you know, there's never enough of you to go around. So that's the first kind of mommy guilt. The second kind of mommy guilt is about the house and the dinners and nutrition. I mean, how many times have we opened cans of corn and let them eat Cheerios or order in pizza and we're prom promising ourselves not to do that again, but just, you know, there's just a certain amount of time. You come home and they're starving and it's better than a chocolate chip cookie, so let's do that. Grilled the cheese third is how kind we do of it. mommy guilt that I find is prevalent is feeling guilty about our parenting skills. So when I am impatient, when I threaten, when I scream, I mean, Today, is the, we live in the world of information, and most of us are aware of what we shouldn't do or should do better. So when we're crossing those lines, we tell ourselves we have this internal critic, right? Why did I threaten? Why was I sarcastic? Why did I say only when you do that do you get that? Why am I like that? Why did they go to sleep crying again tonight? So we feel tremendously guilty about our parenting guilt. And the fourth kind of guilt, which has two parts to it, is if and when we are enjoying our profession, our jobs, or even just time away out of the house and away from our children, we feel tremendously guilty that we are enjoying that sometimes even more than being home with the kids. I remember um, the catalyst of writing this book and creating my online parenting program was a mother who called me tearfully saying that her boss gave her a half day off because some kind of uh, big meeting was canceled. And she said she was standing outside telling herself, I really should run home. I really should take the baby from the babysitter. I really should be there when my kids come home. And 
actually what she wanted was to meet a friend and, and, and just go to the library. And she was devastated. And she said, what kind of mother am I if I don't, you know, if I enjoy doing things away from or besides from my children? And the sub part of that is when we're not feeling guilty about anything, we feel guilty about not feeling guilty. So did I cover it? I think you did, but I'm going to, so many things to focus on, but I'm just going to backtrack just a drop. So, so what do you tell that mother who feels guilty that she would rather be at work than be at home or would rather just go get a cup of coffee instead of running home 10 minutes earlier? Uh, is the mother wrong? You see, I, I don't think that life and definitely not parenting and neither is self-awareness or self-expression uh, one or two dimensional of like, is she wrong or is she right? My theory that I created is based, and I'll answer. This is the, the long <laughs> way to the correct answer. So my theory that I created is built on something very recognizable, which is the three colors of the traffic light, green, red, and yellow. I call it green, love, go. Red, authority, no. And yellow, trust, slow, because I strongly believe that any parenting success should be based on love, authority, and trust. You need all three components. Um, and when I hear a mother not wanting to go back to her children, it could be for a variety of reasons. Either she's constantly giving in and her children are, you know, creating bedlam, and what she really needs is a little bit of the red skills to know how to create boundaries and have self-control and know how to deal with conflict. It could be that it's the opposite, that she's so strict and so regimented that all she does is create resistance and she doesn't feel the, you know, the romantic parenting fluffy feeling and so she doesn't want to be there and she needs a little bit more of the green skills where she will learn to relax, be creative, connect, motivate. Or it could be that she actually is lacking in the yellow skills which covers um, self-care, and trust and decision making and had she learned or if she would learn to take better care of herself or create pockets of time in the 168 hours there are in the week it wouldn't have gotten to that so when you ask me is this a wrong you know was she wrong uh, many mothers might feel the same my experience um, has shown me that usually it's for these three different reasons so I can't know you know what what she would need in order to feel differently. But there's always an answer. So really your goal is to show mothers that, I know you don't like the word balance, but you can show mothers they're allowed to work, they should work, we'll discuss that, they should be taking care of their children, but if they understood the proper skills of, uh, you do actually green, red, yellow instead of whatever, uh, green, yellow, red, but that's okay. Um, if if they had the the understanding of what they should be doing with their life, then they wouldn't be guilty, and they'd probably be much more successful. Did I sort of get that right? You got that beautifully right. You even noticed something that I'll mention in a moment, which most people didn't. So, well, kudos to that. But that is the explanation of what you asked: how to use mommy guilt to become a better mother. Because I don't just like, quote unquote, give permission. Oh, sure, go take a few days off. You need to rejuvenate, which you can do. It's not a problem. You don't need my permission for that. But I'd much rather sit with her and help her figure out 
what are you feeling guilty about, as I, you know, told you and explained to you before, and then that guilt points us to a place where, you know, a place in her life where she could use additional insight and skills, and then the guilt, you know, by definition, is going to be very minimized. But what I did notice that you noticed is you said I do green, red, yellow instead of green, yellow, red. And in the introduction to my book, I explained that. Um, most people say I should first do red because that's the one on top. But since red is boundaries and learning how to say no, I don't begin a relationship or a change in parenting relationship with setting boundaries and saying no. I much prefer to start laying the foundation with green, with love, with dating your child, catching them doing something good, uh, creating, you know, fond memories, and then we could go into the red. And the reason why the yellow isn't in middle and why it's at the end, because I found, and this is, of course, with all the feedback from the thousands of moms who have gone through this and given me the gift of trust and shared their experiences, um, that yellow needs to be, only after, you know, think about the car. You have the, the gas pedal and the brake pedal, right? If you go and you stop. And being on neutral, the yellow, you hardly use unless you're in a car wash or whatever. So I need them first to be proficient and feel confident with the green and red skills before they can trust themselves, trust their children, delegate, create responsibility. Does that resonate? It actually does very well. Um, so they're sending me a message that we have to take a quick break. So if you could hold through the break, um, we're listening to Tara Malach. We're talking mothering. We're talking working. We're talking about learning to build relationships with your children and with your office and all the things you need and not to be guilty. So much good information. So packed in. So please hold through the break and we're going to be right back. You want to see things like this? You just said you died? <laughs> well, I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous tricks. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. And are you ready? Uh, Andy, what holiday is this associated with? Oh, boy. Uh, uh. Sukkot? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win, can you tell us which holiday is this? I'm I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? 
my show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. That's pretty good. Times we see a guy running down to first base and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. Umped. I mean, that's the, getting umped. <laughs> that, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're going to have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. And we're back with Atara Malach. Um, Atara, are you still there? Yes, definitely. Excellent. We had a little issue in the back room, but we are all good and up and running. Um, just something interesting. My wife says to me all the time, she watches so many mothers, working mothers, not working mothers, that they're overwhelmed. And they're the same mothers that must make sure that they make a cake for this one and a kugel for that one and suppers for this one. And my wife says, no, because I can't do everything. I, I know a lot of your no is focused on even with the children, but she, for her, it's important to know I have my limits and I can't help the whole world and I can't be super mom. Is that one of the things you deal with or discuss with people? Actually, it is. I like creating clarity. So I say that every no is actually a yes to something or someone else. So when we say no to too many community obligations in order for us to be able to spend enough calm time with our children, we are actually saying yes to our motherhood, our sense of accomplishment, and the relationship that we find so important and is our legacy with our children. I even have, you see, in each chapter of the book, I put in... And it's also on the online program, I Am Realistic. So I put something, we have the road analogy. So I call it speed tactics or bumps in the road. And we also show how every single skill can be implemented in the workplace and is just as effective. So I want to share one of the skills, and that is that I say, I can't, but I can. When a child comes and says, um, can you drive me to you know, practice today? So I say, I can't drive you at 4 o'clock, but I can wait for you when you're done at 5, and we can have some hot chocolate in the car. I mean, it's snowing by you, right? Or maybe snowing. <laughs> well, no, it's drizzly and cold, so hot chocolate is good. <laughs> so, yes, uh, a no is actually a yes to something else. So, you know, understand that and connect to that. And the formula of I can't, but I can, or sometimes I can give an option at the end. Like, I can't allow a sleepover on a school night, but I can plan with you for either a weekend or vacation. What would you prefer? Okay, I got it. Excellent. So I will tell my wife, if I tell her that she's doing a good job, she's going to laugh at me and say, what do you know? But anyways. No, but you uh, tell that to her anyway. Come yeah, on. She I will. deserves it. Of course. I will tell her, listen to today's program. This Atara speaks your language. I, I tell her all the time. I say, to her, I said, you know, you should go on the speaking tour. 
and she says to me, no one's going to listen to me because I just say things differently than everybody else. I said, okay, one day when you're ready, you'll do it anyways, but, and I'll have her call you. Um, here's a thought. Um, it's really like a double-edged question, and I have different children who fit different molds on this one. Um, do you feel it's in a child's best interest that the mother is a stay-at-home mother, is part one, and as a follow-up, is it in a mother's best interest to stay at home? And obviously, there's different personalities. Definitely. Um, so, in a way, it's a trick question, but it's not, because I think that this is our life's struggle. Um, no matter what the reason a mother is going to go out to work, if it's, uh, you know, a financial necessar- necessity, which in today's uh, society, um, even just keeping up with the tuition and the, the braces and the orthodontist, um, you know, two and parents weddings. working is hardly enough, especially if you want to give charity and be able, you know, to give back and contribute. But whatever the reason a mother is working, whether it's, as I said, financial or, you know, it's her passion, it's a talent that Hashem gave her that she wants to share with others, no matter what it is, we are always going to feel that there's not enough of us to go around. Meaning, the most, the feeling that I felt most overwhelming was that no matter where I was, I felt I should be somewhere else. Um, that means if I was at work, I was worried about the kids at home or the sick kids at home or what was happening to the house at home. And, and, and if, if I was at home, I was concerned about a client or a paper I you know, still had to give in on time and deadlines. And no, it was, and no matter what I did, it never was enough. Either it wasn't enough for you know, the people in the workplace, my clients, my boss, or my children or my spouse, or actually for myself that I had these expectations. So now let me uh, try to, uh, now that I said it's not a question of what's better for the child or what's better for the mother, it's actually a struggle and a mission. And they're, you know, we're constantly changing parts. It's like a mosaic. Because don't forget that the family makeup is different. The ages of the children are different. The age of the parents is different. Uh, at a certain age, you know, we're busy with our parents and grandparents, so we're the sandwich generation. There, there's so much to take into consideration. So, you know what? Depends what you look at as better. Because if the idea is be there no matter what, then of course you're going to say it's better for the child to be home. If you say, let children learn about reality, let them learn how to scramble an egg and how to appreciate the fact that a mother comes home tired and does the best that she can, then you're saying that they're getting a tremendous foundation to be able to not only um, enjoy life more, but to make it more pleasant for their families because they are unspoiled, flexible, appreciative, and uh, grateful. So the answer to that is, I find, attitude. If a mother feels resentful that she has to go to work, of course it's going to be difficult for her at work and at home. If she feels guilty enjoying work, it's going to be the same problem. If a child feels abandoned when parents leave, that is really a difficulty and a challenge. If a child, you know, it was very interesting. I had a uh, a child, I I used to also um, treat children, and she told me that she was jealous of her friend whose mother worked because her mother was home, and she told me that her mother knew every cookie that was eaten, every piece of fruit that was taken from the fruit drawer in the fridge. She made her leave her shoes out the door and put on slippers when she came home, and she used to play all the time by her friend's house. Either her mother wasn't home, or when she came home, she was so frazzled, she wasn't really hyper-obsessive about what was going on. So you tell me what kids want. Amazing. 
times. I mean, it's. I mean, I don't want to say it's fortunate, unfortunate, but that's really part of the times we live in. They just yep. that children are different, people are different. There's stress, which was really one of my questions, and it's a. It's also an interesting question or a funny question. Um, is there ever a good stress? Well. There is a psychological term for good stress, and that's called U-stress, E-U, like Europe. And that, let's say, is when someone is moving, somebody gets promoted, um, someone's preparing a wedding. um, And I want to tell you the downside of that. So, yes, there is good stress, but you know the unbelievable um, reality, especially in our communities, those who are going through stress or distressful times, we have everyone to help them. We have all kinds of community organizations that help them if they need, you know, help and if they need Shabbos food and if they're going through an illness and to sit with the thing. And even you mentioned burial before. We even have Misaskim that helps with, the, you know, with anything to do from, uh, you know, the death until after sitting Shiva. Oh, we're all there galvanized. Most people don't have any kind of support system when they're marrying off a child and they're starving because they didn't, you know, cook lunch or they come home to a messy house or they're getting promoted and they're sitting up nights, um, you know, preparing um, a presentation or when they're building a home. And so, yes, there is good stress and yet we have much less support or recognition. If anything, people might be jealous or say, you know, you wanted it, you asked for it, deal with it. Okay, that that. Answer the question. I like every time I ask you a question, you have so much good stuff to say. I could say like three words and learn so much more. But time is starting to run out. So I I, want to try to end the show with a couple um, important things. Number one, and, you know, obviously we can't do everything as we say on one foot. But is there anything that a working mother could start right now to help them, whether we want to use the word balance or, or just not be so feeling guilty and stressed? Just one one thing, if it's possible, that could help them right now. Definitely. Um, of course, I should say, but I'm not a marketer. Well, buy my book, sign up for my program, call me, and we'll do this together. That's but the I next thing. We, we're going to do that next. No, no, no. I didn't say that, <laughs> which is why I want to give them a skill that is going, an insight and a skill. The insight is you can do this, and you can become confident and competent and feel more in control and enjoy every moment at home and at work by using and practicing the same skills. And let me give you one. I'm not going to repeat what I said, which is a no is a yes, and I can't, but I can. I'm going to do something else, which I've mentioned many times and I even mentioned in passing now. And this is catch your child or your boss or anyone at work, whatever, doing something good. And I'll take it a little bit further and I'll show you why that, you know, decreases the stress and the guilt. When you catch somebody doing something good when they didn't even intend to. First, of course, you can if they take, you know, take their uh, plate off the uh, table or if they're making their bed in the morning or they remember to brush their teeth after the thousand times. Of course, they wanted you to notice and you should notice that instead of everything they didn't do. Or if the report was done on time or they went out of the way for your client, yes, definitely give them verbal validation and a compliment. But even when somebody doesn't intend to do something good, if your child is just sitting quietly engrossed in a book, you can say, that was so nice that you didn't interrupt me when I was speaking on Sloan with an important client, and she didn't even have that in mind. So if you take it to three levels, 
catch people doing something good because they will reciprocate. They will flourish. They will flower, and they will do it mutually to make you happier. You're creating a, a reciprocal relationship where they want to do good things, and they want to earn your recognition and attention. Then catch them doing something good when they didn't even intend to. And the third thing is catch yourself doing good things because we are our own worst critics and we are the consistent creators of mommy guilt, which makes us, you know, much less efficient as mothers, as wives, as people, as, as whoever we show up, you know, like in the workplace. And if we catch ourselves doing good things, we will be able to empower ourselves and encourage ourselves. And when you exude that positive energy, it's contagious. Amazing. Unbelievable. The amount that I'm learning, and I'm not even a mother, is unbelievable. So, Tara, we're, we're, I'm getting up against it. Um, what can you leave us? Well, you left us with so much, but how can someone get in touch with you, either to have you come speak or to work with you or if they need to get your book? Um, how can we get in touch with Tara Malach if we want to get in touch with her? Okay, so my website is themommyguiltexpert.com. That people remember www.themommyguiltexpert.com. My book is on Amazon, A Working Mother's GPS. And anybody who writes me a personal email at atara at ataramalach.com will get a personal reply. Unbelievable. Amazing. I like connection and I invest in it. Atara, this was so much fun. We have to do this again. I I, I think I hit like... Four and a half questions, and I my page is all scribbled on. I really appreciate the time. It was so good to speak to you. You're so full of energy and so full of good ideas and knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. It's really looking forward to next time. Okay, great. Have a good Shabbos. We'll be in touch. You. Okay, we are past time, so we're going to go straight into the break. When we come back, we got to do our letter of the week. We got to finish up good stories. You're listening to Rabbi Tzu, and let's talk to her, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. (laughs) Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to the drop-in today. Then you get off your couch and you make life happen. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. (laughs) I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Times we see a guy running down to first base and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. Umped. I mean, that's the, <laughs> getting umped. <laughs> that, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. 
And we're back. And I hope you listened and re-listened to that last two segments we had with Atari Malach. That was unbelievable. So much information just flowing. Um, I would like to say I hope that her kids growing up appreciated their mother as good as she is. Amazing. So let's get to time is a little shorter. We changed some of our break times over here. So let's get straight into our letter of the week. We are up to the third letter. The letter is Gimel. It, it makes the G sound. Its numerical value is three. And uh, the word I picked this week was Gumel, which happens to be the same letters as the word Gimel. Um, it means camel. And camels actually play a, a, a side part, but an important part in this week's Torah portion. Because Abraham sends his servant, Eliezer, to get a wife for his son Isaac, for Yitzchak. So, and it seems important to the Torah to mention the fact that there's 10 camels, the gumal or gamalim, 10 camels that travel with Eliezer, full of, I guess, delicacies from the land of Israel and, and jewelry and silver and gold to show the family that uh, this is a wealthy family. Isaac's a wealthy family. It's worthwhile for their daughter to go back because she'll be well taken care of. Um, when Eliezer reaches the well, he makes the condition he wants Rebecca to not only give him to drink, but to give his camels to drink. And that's a lot of work because we know camels, after a long uh, journey through the desert, are going to drink a lot. And here you have a little girl having um, 10 camels um, well watered. And then um, on the way back, so Rebecca's riding the camel, and she sees Isaac in the distance, and she sees this holy man. She doesn't know who it is. And she says to Eliezer, who is that? And Eliezer says, that's Isaac, the one you're going to marry. And she almost falls off the camel. So camels, the gummel, really gets um, mentioned a lot of times in this Torah portion. So gummel, or camel, becomes really a good word that we could bring up. So uh, I don't have too much time left. But um, one other thing, we talked a lot about burial at the beginning of the Torah portion. We talked about it's a kindness. So, and we talked about with Atara all about being a mother. And you have a big, actually, a huge, large part of this Torah portion is discussing um, Rebecca and Eliezer finding a wife for Isaac, the concept of marriage. So I saw this morning from Essential Fall Hirsch, very beautiful. Um, people get confused in what marriage is all about. And unfortunately, in a country like America, um, the divorce rate we all know is quite high. Um, a friend of mine I was once studying with was a colonel in, um, in, in the, um, I think in the army, he was a doctor. And he was in Iraq. And so they would have people help them that were, they're Iraqis. So they would always have conversations. So the Iraqi would tell this colonel and his friends, yeah, um, my father told me who I'm marrying, so we're getting married, like, you know, in a month or something. So the Americans were, like, flabbergasted. They're like, what do you mean? You, you don't even know who you're getting married to? How is that possible? It doesn't make sense. So the Iraqi said, look, we, we, the parents will meet and decide it's a good match and we'll end up living on one of the compounds. We're like compounds where families would live. 
And uh, since the families have a good fit, and then we get married, and we learn to live with each other, and then we learn to love each other. So again, the soldiers couldn't understand it, because they're used to the American way. Love comes first, and then comes marriage. So the song goes, and then the baby and the kid in the baby carriage, however the song goes. So the Iraqi says to this colonel and his friends, he says, let me ask you a question. What's your divorce rate? Because I can tell you ours is minimal. What's yours? So maybe somebody's doing something wrong, and it doesn't look like it's us, the Iraqi said. And that, Rav Samson says, this is really what you see in the Torah portion this week. If you look clearly at the words of the portion, it says, first he married her, first Isaac marries Rebecca, and then he loves her. And that was the idea of love is not supposed to be before marriage. It doesn't mean they're just supposed to put two people blindly in a room and say, get married, you'll figure it out later. I don't mean to take it that far. What I mean to say is that, that a person needs to understand that the love will come later. The concept of giving, if I give you, I learn to love you, I, I learn to respect you, I learn to take care of you. But to think that love will come before marriage, um, generally speaking, that's not love. We call that lust. Um, it's not love. Yeah, maybe I can learn to hang out with you, but if we all imagine, yes, and there's supposed to be chemical reactions, and I'm supposed to have feelings towards you, and I'm supposed to want to be with you, all true and good. But really, really, we need to focus a little bit that the love really is supposed to come later. And, and we're always building and adding and, 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 and I keep saying and a bunch of times because I can't find the right word. But the idea is we're building relationship. We're always adding. We're always hanging out with each other. We're always giving to each other. We're always looking to do new things. It's not that, well, I loved you at the beginning, and that's what's going to help me coast through the rest of my life. It does not work that way. But my, my mindset has to be that I'm always looking to give. I'm always looking to improve on my relationship. So, therefore, the marriage really is what's supposed to be coming first. And the love is supposed to come after. That's the message in this week's Torah portion. That's the lesson from the story that I just shared with you with the Iraqi soldier and my friend the colonel. And that's what makes it work. It makes it work if we understand that I'm always building on the love, more love than yesterday. And already my music is coming. I didn't even get to any of the stories I prepared. But in any case, thank you to my wonderful, wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, Kelsey, Angel, Steven, Zach. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.